Today's topic is the beast of Revelation 13, the number 666, and the seal of God. So this is going to be a topic we're going to try to cover in this in this sermon. You guys are going to have to bear with me if it's a little bit longer than the other sermons, but we're going to try to, to put this in a nutshell as far as possible. So Revelation 13, what does Revelation 13 present? So open your Bibles to Revelation 13. So here we have the topic of the mark of the beast, which is established and imposed by the means of two human institutions, two entities that are presented in this chapter as two beasts. One of them arises from the sea and the other from the earth. Unfortunately, this is a chapter that has been really misunderstood by many. And I'm talking about not only many Christians, but many theologians, many scholars. And of course, it's been one of the most abused chapters in the Bible. Remember that I had mentioned in one of my earlier sermons some lines of interpretation like preterism, uh, which means that everything already happened in John's time. So the book of Revelation is not relevant. So you can understand where that can mislead a lot of people. Because if it doesn't have any meaning for us, then why study it, right? Then we have the futurism, which is that it's too far in the future that we can't understand it. And it will apply sometime in the future, and then we'll be able to understand it. So that's another line of prophecy which has misled a lot of people. So the evidence based on the Holy Bible and history tells us otherwise. So the method that we use as Seventh-day Adventists and some other churches also is the historical, critical, prophetic method. In other words, these prophecies are being fulfilled throughout history until the end of time. And so uh, this is the method that we use. And uh, of course, you know, there, there's just so much misunderstanding. There was this one guy that was giving Bible studies. Imagine, he's giving Bible studies. That means that he has knowledge about what? About the Bible. So he's giving Bible studies, and somehow they ended up in chapter 13 of Revelation and he said something like this. He said, oh, don't worry about those beasts. Those died with the dinosaurs. You know, so, you know how people can just be so misled by what they understand in, in the Bible. So we need to search digitally. So let's go to Revelation chapter 13 and let's start with verse 1. Then stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up from the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns. And on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying... Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God. He blasphemed his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So in apocalyptic literature, we find beasts. And you guys remember what beasts represent? 
They represent kingdoms, okay? That's in, in the Bible, it says that these beasts represent kingdoms or human institutions or, or other entities. And that should not be offensive to us because even Jesus re represented in the Bible as, as, as a beast, like a lamb or, or, or like a lion. So it shouldn't be offensive to us. These are just ways that the apocalyptic literature helps us understand what's going on. So let's jump right in and try to find some identification marks of this first beast, okay? So let's go with this first beast. So here we have this first beast. It rises from where? From the sea. And according to the Bible, Revelation 17, 15, sea represents peoples, represents multitudes, nations, and languages. So that means that this beast obviously rises from a place that is greatly populated, okay? Then we have characteristic number two, has seven heads. And heads in the Bible represents mountains or hills. We can find that in Revelation 17, 9. So we have here the second identification mark. The third identification mark has ten horns. And what does horns mean in the Bible? Well, in the Bible, ten horns are ten kings. Horns represent kings. So Revelation 17, 12. Another identification mark, it says that he speaks what? Blasphemy or blasphemy against God. Blasphemy, obviously, he tries to occupy the place of God. Then we have identification mark number five. The dragon gives it its power and throne and authority. Okay, so when we study history, remember the method is the historical, critical, prophetic method of interpretation. There's only one institution, one human institution that fits this characteristics. So let's, let's take a look at that. So the Roman Catholic Apostolic Church has all this characteristic. Let's just go through this real quick here. So it arises within the Roman Empire, which was greatly populated. So the sea, remember sea represents people or multitudes. It arises during the time that Europe is being formed, you know, the Ten Kings. It settles in the city, which is actually called, the, the, the city of Rome is called the city of the seven hills. Because there's actually seven hills there. We'll, we'll talk about that later. And then, of course, it received power and authority from the Roman Empire. The power to forgive sins is also attributed to the Catholic Church. They, they think they have the power to forgive sins, which would be blasphemy against God. So here we have, you know, the, the seven hills. I just wanted to put this on there because some people don't, don't have this information. So these are the seven hills. You can see them marked there in this, in this map. So let, let's go through this really quick. So... This power, the Roman Catholic Church, rises from the sea, a populated area. This power is located or comes out of Rome. Rome is known as the city of the seven what? The seven hills. Actually, today, if someone visits Rome, the tour guide is going to take you to the seven hills. <laughs> so you can, you can know about this. They're told about these seven mountains. Uh, the ten horns, the Roman Empire, had its capital in Rome. But by the fifth century, it began to divide into what now it are the countries of Europe like uh, Spain, uh, Portugal, uh, England, France, Italy, etc., which were part of the Roman Empire but later became independent nations. Blasphemies against God. One of the biggest blasphemies that I mentioned up there was to go and confess your sins to a priest, the confessionals. And you know, the priest would use the, the phrase, ego te absolvo, I absolve you of your sins. When the Bible clearly states, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to who? 
to the Lord. Remember the psalmist, Psalm 32? And, and, and Jesus, Jesus himself was accused of blasphemy. Remember when he had forgiven the, 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 the paralytic? He said, your sins are forgiven. And, and the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes were like, this guy is committing blasphemy because who can forgive sins but only God? Well, Jesus is God, so what's the problem, right? But, but he was uh, accused of blasphemy. Well, the news is that God is the only one that can say, ego te absolvo. He's the only one that can forgive sins. Now, the dragon gave the beast its power. So the, the Satan has always acted as the dragon through human institutions. So in Revelation 12, 9, what do we find? Revelation 12, 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So the Roman Empire in this instance acted as the dragon inspired by Satan. Revelation 12, 3, you know, remember when, when, when the devil tries to kill Jesus at his birth and he sends through the Roman Empire to King Herod, he sends an army to kill all the babies, one up to two years of age in Bethlehem. So see how the dragon has used human uh, entities, in this case the Roman Empire, to try to destroy Jesus. The dragon gave the power to the beast. That's what the text says. Now, how did this happen? Well, history tells us that the Roman emperor issued a decree for the bishop of Rome to become the bishop of all Christians. There were four church bishoprics. In other words, there were four places where the Christian church was governed. So we had Jerusalem, Antioch, we had Carthage in, in North Africa, and then Rome. Gradually, the bishop of Rome was acquiring more authority. And, of course, that was because that bishop was in the capital of the empire, right? So, so that, that helped out a lot. Uh, actually, we find in, in earlier centuries, like in the 4th century, Constantine the Great, he wanted to move the capital to Constantinople, and, which today is Istanbul, you know, the capital of Turkey. And he actually built a temple, I mean a cathedral, it's one of the biggest cathedrals in the world in honor of his mother, Sophia, it's called the Cathedral of Santa Sophia, built in honor of, to his mother, but something interesting that, that Constantine did, he created an army and gave that army to the bishop of Rome to help him with all his dealings, that, that, that was something, something amazing. So, so we do have some other confirmatory uh, elements. For example, the Bible says that it was given power for how many? How many months? 42 months. So if we multiply 42 times 30, which was the, the, the days of the month at that time, it will give us 1,260 prophetic days, which in prophecy means years. Okay, so in, in biblical prophecy, a day equals a year. And it says it would receive a fatal wound. But then it says that that wound would be what? Would be healed. So, so let's take a look at this. And then, of course, it says the whole earth would marvel, would marvel after the beast. So, so let, let's try to explain this a little bit. So here we have what in, in history is called the, the papal supremacy. When did it start? Okay, so we have here A.D. 538 with the Justinian Decree. And if we add the 1,260 days or years, it takes us to the year 1798, 
where Pope Pius VI was taken captive by the French army. Now, this time frame is mentioned many times in the Bible. If you guys can, can see up here, we have, for example, uh, in Daniel 7.25, a time, times, and have a time. That's the same period because it's talking about one year, two years, and then a half a year. So we're talking about three and a half years, which would be 42 months. Uh, Daniel 12.7 mentions it again, time, times, and a half times. 42 months is mentioned in Revelation 11.2. Uh, 11.3 mentions 1,260 days. Revelation 12.6, 1,260 days. Revelation 12.14, a time, times, and have a time. And here in Revelation that we're studying in Revelation 13.5, it mentions 42 months. So it's, it's the same period of time. But let, let's try to just go into this just a little further in detail. So in A.D. 538, after death, we have the time of persecution, which lasted, which is also called the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, uh, all the way to 1798, and we also have something that we find in history, which is the union of religious and civil powers that unite. So the Catholic Church, by becoming the bishop of all Christians, was also granted civil power, and that was by decree. Now, I do want to notice something here, that in the year 533, Justinian, the Roman Emperor, issued the decree that the bishop of Rome should be the Christian of all of all Christianity, but that didn't happen until 538. It didn't come into, into practice until 538. Well, Belisarius, the, the Roman general, defeats the Orthrogods who imposed, who opposed the Justinian Edict, and here we see the absolute power of the Bishop of Rome beginning. So that's why we use the, the year 538, even though the, the law came earlier, but it didn't come into practice until 538. So uh, what happens at the end of the period? Well, in 1798, the 15th of February, it was the French Revolution, right? So we have uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. He orders his general, Alexander Berthier, to take Pope Pius VI prisoner and declares his power terminated. So that's the, that's the, the wound that we find there in Revelation 13. This action takes place in the Sistine Chapel, when the Pope celebrated his 23rd anniversary of his coronation. So he was celebration, celebrating his uh, Pope of power, and he is taken captive, and so his power comes to an end on that, on that day. Now, the Bible does say that that wound would be what? Okay, so uh, before I go there, I, I find it very interesting that during that period from 538 all the way to 1798, the Bible was chained to the pulpit. And the only one that could read the Bible was the priest, and he could only read it in Latin. And he would preach in Latin. Actually, when I was pastor in Mexico, some of the older generations, like I was 20, 25 years old when I became I had my first district, my first churches, and I would talk to some of the older folks, and they would tell me that when they grew up, the priest would preach in the Catholic church in Latin. And they would say, Pastor, I didn't understand anything because I speak Spanish. But they would preach in Latin because that was, that was the custom. Okay? But the Bible says that the wound would be healed. So let, let, let's go and, and try to understand this because this didn't happen overnight. This was a, a process. Okay? This was a process. So let's see what happens. Benito Mussolini, he became prime ministry of Italy on this date right here. 1922 so that was in 1922 that he becomes prime minister 
And he starts to be create, create a dictatorship of Italy. And to, it comes to a point where he understands that they have to fix issues with the Catholic Church. And so there is a treaty called the Lateran Treaty. Lateran, because that happened in the, in the Cathedral of John Lateran. It's a huge temple, a huge Catholic temple. They made a treaty there, February 11, 1929, with Pope Pius XI. What happened there? Well, they decided that the Pope should get his civil power back. And so they gave him a piece of land. It was not any land. It was a choice property, 144-acre property that became what is now called the State of the Vatican. And that's where that treaty took place, in the church or the Cathedral of Lateran, February 11th, 1929. Now, now look what the Pope said. And I think this synthesizes better than anyone the scope of the church's triumph. He said, my little kingdom, he affirmed, is the largest in the world. The Italian and foreign press agreed with him with a signing of the Lateran Treaty, which recognized the sovereignty of the Vatican State, a small and luxurious freedom of 144 acres. The Catholic Church closed a lawsuit that began almost a century ago when the political consequences of the temporal power of the papacy had put her in one of the most difficult situations in her history. So look what the Pope says. My little kingdom is the largest in the world. And, and of course, you know, if you, if you go to the Vatican, you can see that it's a country within a country. So it's in Italy, and yet it's a state on its own. It has its own postage stamp. It has its own flag. Um, it has its own government. The Swiss uh, army is the one that, that protects the, the Vatican, the, the Swiss guards. And so it's a country within a country, totally independent. You go to, to Rome, and then you want to go to the Vatican, it's like if you're traveling to another country. You literally have to go through all the protocol, like if you were traveling from one country to another. You can't just walk into the Vatican. It's like going into another country. Now, the Bible says that the whole earth would marvel after the beast. So let, let's see how that happens. So uh, that's in Revelation 13.3. January 10, 1984, diplomatic relations between the United States and the Vatican were established. Who was president then? Someone can remember? Very famous president. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Of course, if, if you guys go and study history, in 1950, a congressman proposed that the United States send a, a, an ambassador to the Vatican, but it was objected, and it was uh, literally uh, rejected because of our Protestant roots. It was not accepted in 1984 with no problem. It was accepted that we have an ambassador in the Vatican, and these diplomatic relationships were established. So the, the Bible says that the earth would wonder after the beast. So right now there's 88 countries that maintain embassies in the Holy See. The Vatican city-state, over which the Holy See is sovereign, is the smallest independent entity in the world, and yet one of the most powerful. The wound would be healed. Now, check this out. Revelation 13, 18 says, here is wisdom. Let him who what? Who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man his number is six, 
Six, six. This enigmatic number is related in the Bible to war against God and his people. Remember, seven is God's number, the perfect number? So what would six mean? It's almost seven. It's almost seven. So uh, many scholars have uh, written about this, and they say that triple six is six is the number of rebellion. It's, it's the number of sin. Imagine six to the third power. Six, six, six. So this means that whatever institution and the one that we have figured out because of the, of the characteristics of the identification mark with this, the, 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 cult, the Catholic Church, it, it, we find here that if it's triple six, it's because they are very defiant against God. I mean, you just go through some of the Catholic doctrines and you can understand that. So the, the number is related to the war against God and his people. Now, the Old Testament uh, mentions time and time again the nations that attacked the Hebrews. You remember we, we have the Egyptians, we have the Syrians. But one of the, the kingdoms that attacked constantly God's people and did so much harm to God's people in the Old Testament were the Babylonians. Babylon. Babylon did a lot of harm to God's people. The number of Babylon that, that they used to characterize their kingdom was six. That's interesting. Today... New symbolic Babylon that we find in the book of Revelation that we're going to study in one of my other topics uh, that arises and fights against God and his people, which is the, the Roman Catholic Church, also has this number. So let, let's try to figure this out. So there's a, an amulet. Let's go ahead and put this on, on here for you guys. This was found by some archaeologists in Babylon. Babylon does not exist. It's just ruins. But in these ruins, they found an amulet, a good large charm that the priest of Babylon would use. And it only consists of numbers from 1 to 36. And look how all these numbers add up. So th this is an amulet that they found. And all these numbers, it doesn't matter if you go this way on the columns or that way in the rows. They all add up to 666. So I just found that interesting that 6 was a very common number that was used in Babylon, even in their worship even in their worship. So uh, let, 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 let's, let's keep going on. So I don't know if you guys remember that Peter, he was in Rome once, and he was writing from Rome, and he mentions that he was in Babylon. You guys remember that? So let, let's put it on the, on, the, on the screen here for you. So 1 Peter 5.13 says, The church that is in Babylon, Babylon does not exist, but Peter is relating to Babylon when he is in Rome because Rome is doing the same thing that Babylon did back in the days, attack God's people. Okay, so he says, the church that is in Babylon, chosen together with you, and Mark, my son, greet you. So no, notice how there was a relationship between Babylon and, and, and Rome in the, in the apostle's mind. So let, let's go back to the number then. So as the beast or Antichrist is not, nor can it be a person, okay, we need to make that clear. Because remember, beast represents a what? A kingdom or a power or an entity. So it's not a person, okay? Uh, therefore, we cannot place the name of any pope to add the letters to his name and try to come up with 666. We must find a name or a title applicable to all the bishops of Rome or, more specifically, to the papacy or the Roman Catholic system. So, so it's not a person. So I want to make that clear because when the Bible says it's, it's a number of a man, it's not talking about a man as a human being. It's talking generically. It's talking about it's a number of human beings 
kind. So like I mentioned, if 666 is rebellion against God, it means that human beings have become rebellious to God and specifically through these institutions. So uh, for centuries, there has been an effort to understand the number 666, where it puts that number on the beast. So the first Christians applied it to whom? Who do you think they applied it to? Well, they applied it, okay, in the Greek language to Nero, okay, the, the... the emperor of the Roman, of the Roman uh, emperor. So we have here that his name is some 666, but there's a serious problem. Because in order to know to which institution or entity the prophecy refers to, we must take into account every detail of the Bible, just like we did a minute ago. So it rises from a place, there's a lot of people, a place where there are seven hills, uh, you know. And so we went through all of that already, and we identified what power is talking about. So definitely was not talking about about Nero. And of course, there's been some very uh, fanciful attempts here in the United States. Ronald Wilson Reagan. Maybe he was the beast because each one of his names has six letters. You see how, how messy this can get? Okay. All right. Uh, many others have applied 666 to other persons or names, but what does the Bible say? So, uh, of course, behind all of this, we know is Satan. So I just found it interesting that John, that is writing in Greek, The book of Revelation was written in Greek. In Greek, the word Satan, which is, as you see here on the screen, uh, Tatan, is with the the, the numeric uh, value of the letters, it adds up to 666. So I, I just found that very interesting because we know that behind all of this is Satan. Okay, the dragon that we talked about. So he's behind all of this. Isn't that something that just occurred on somebody's mind? to attack God and his people and his truth. So we know that Satan is behind a lot of this. And so I just found it interesting that in Greek, in which John was writing, the name Satan adds up to 666. Now, I also found this interesting that the phrase dux cleri, which means duke or captain of the clergy, dedicated to the, to the Pope of Rome, adds up to 666. We see that the letter U in, in Latin is actually uh, a V, We also see that not all letters in Latin have a, a numerical value. But if we add up the value of this title, of this phrase, Dux Cleti, it adds up to 666. I just found that uh, interesting. In Greek, He Letne Basilia, which means in English Latin kingdom, which is also applied to the papal seat, the seventh head of the apocalyptic beast, it adds up to 666 according to the value of the letters of the Greek language. So you can see how those, those letters that have numeric value, they add up also to 666. But of course, I know you guys have heard this one before. Vicarius Fididei. Now, there's problems with this one, and I'll explain in just a minute. But this is the phrase most linked with the papal claims. Vicarius Fididei, vicar or representative of the Son of God. With this name, the Bishop of Rome claims to be the visible head of the church and govern the world. So since, since this was figured out, that this was one of the titles, the Catholic Church, trying to protect itself, has done everything possible to erase from history the evidence that they have ever claimed this. So, so let's go through this. Okay, so here, we're here, let's put the slide. So look what they have done. They have done Every attempt to erase history and evidence. They have bought the encyclopedias. 
containing information of this title, Vicarios Filidei. You can go to many countries and you go to the library and there's a volume missing of that certain set of encyclopedias. Because in that volume, it mentions that one of the titles of the Pope is Vicarios Filidei. You can go to your own country and you might find that in the, in the, in the library. Okay? So they've done everything to erase this historical information. Uh, saying that they are mistakes that have been made. Or looking for arguments to reduce the power of the evidence. Like the donation of Constantine. So let, let's talk about this one real quick. So this is a forged Roman imperial decree by which the 4th century emperor Constantine the Great supposedly transferred authority over Rome and the western part of the Roman Empire to the Pope. Composed probably in the 8th century, it was used specifically in the 13th century to support the claims of the political authority of the papacy. But look how they, they fix this. So they say that the phrase that's in this donation of Constantine, which says, Blessed Peter, is seen to have been constituted vicar of the Son of God on earth. They say that that, that is a mistake, that we're not reading that clearly. That Vicario Filidei is not used as a title, but rather as a descriptive term saying what Peter was. So I don't get it. So if Peter was the first pope, then they're literally saying that the pope is the representative of the Son of God. Yes or no? Okay, but they're just trying to argue their way out. Then we have this book by John Paul II, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, where he writes, The pope is considered the man on earth who represents the Son of God. I don't think it can be clearer than that. And yet they argue and say this is not a title. Secondly, represents is not a noun, but rather a verb. And it's translated as representant. And the son is accusative, not generative. So the correct translation should be filium dei representat and not vicarius filidei. Well, I don't get it because I think what the Pope wrote is very clear. He is saying that the Pope represents the Son of God. And then, of course, our Sunday visitor, which this is a long story. I'm not going to tell you the story of how we got these documents. But the Seventh-day Adventist in the General Conference has some of these documents, original documents. Uh, so this was an issue in 18, uh, the 18th of April, 1915. It's a newspaper by the Catholic Church here in the United States where it says specifically that they recognize that Vicarius Filidei is applied to the Pope. And, and for example, it says here, uh, what are the letters on the Pope's crown and what do they signify? If anything, that was a question that was asked to a journalist, a Catholic journalist. And the letters of the Pope's crown are these, Vicarius Filidei. That's what he answers, which in Latin is Vicar of the Son of God. So the Catholic Church says that this is just bad journalism, that the journalist didn't know what he was talking about. That he just made a mistake. And of course, you know, if you read there, the, the, uh, it also mentions that the author acknowledged that he was mistaken. So I don't know if they threatened him or whatever, but, but we know that the author of this article later said that he had made a mistake. Now, something I do find interesting is that people would say that in the tiara of the Pope was written the, the words Vicarius Filidei, which in 1905, a Seventh-day Advent pastor that would always preach this, he wanted to get out of all doubt. So he went to Rome, and he was actually after begging time and time again to be able to go into the wardrobe of the popes and see the tiaras th throughout history to see if Vicarius Filidei was on there 
Well, what was our surprise? You know, today we have a lot of conspiracy theories. So that was one of the Adventist conspiracy theories because there was no such title and none of the, of the Pope's crowns. But we don't need that. We have all the rest of the information in the Bible to prove that that's the institution that's represented in the first beast of Revelation 13. Okay, so it's very important that we understand this. So this is one letter that was, uh, this was in 1914, which actually it's stating that the church recognizes that 666 applies to the Pope. Okay, this is the letter that we find that I was mentioning you, you guys of uh, April 18, 1915. It says the letters inscribed in the postmeter are Vicarius Filidei, which in Latin is in Latin for Vicar of the Son of God. Catholics believe. Look what this, this journalist wrote who was questioned about this. The Catholics believe that the church is a visible society and must have a visible head. Christ, before his ascension, this is what the Catholic Church teaches, Christ, before his ascension into heaven, appointed the apostle St. Peter to act as his representative. Henceforth, the bishop of Rome, as head of the church, was given the title of Vicar of Christ. And so that, that what was found there, which was later uh, claimed by the Catholic Church to be a mistake, by the person that was answering the questions for the church. Okay? And, of course, this is something that, that we also were able to get a hold of, and this is another really crazy story. You guys can probably look this up uh, on your own. But here we have this person, which is, uh, if you guys can read there, the professor that wrote, uh, that actually made this document was professor of ancient history and Christian archaeology in the School of Sacred Theology, uh, Catholic Life University in Washington, D.C. And so he wrote on the top there, th this is a person of authority in the Catholic Church. He writes on the top, the title, Vicarius Filidei, as well as Vicarius Christi, is very common as the title for the Pope. And so we got this uh, uh, signed and notarized uh, back there on, on, on that date there that we were, we're mentioning about uh, 1940. 43. But we're not worried about that. I'll tell you why. Because with this declaration of the Catholic Church, we don't need to go to the number thing. Which actually doesn't make much sense because I already told you 666 literally just represents an attack against God and his people. So the Pope, this is, this is what the, the, the Catholic Church teaches, the Pope possesses such great dignity and such exaltedness that he is not a mere man. Follow me. But as if he were God and he is God's vicar. The Pope is, so to speak, God on earth. God on earth. Soul sovereign of the faithful of Christ, head of kings, plenipotentiary to whom the omnipotent God has entrusted the direction not only of earthly affairs, but also of those of the heavenly kingdom. The Pope is of such great authority and such great power that he cannot modify, explain, or interpret even the divine laws. That he can, sorry, ex modify, explain, and interpret even the divine laws. The Pope can alter divine law since his power does not come from man but from God. And he acts on God's vicegerent on earth with a broad power to blind and untie what concerns the member of his flock. And there's the, the quotation there, the reference. Then in another book, the 
Catechism of Christian Doctrine, page 16, says, The Pope is infallible. He cannot err. When as pastor and teacher of every Christian, he defines a doctrine concerning the faith or morality to which the whole church is to adhere. So we don't really need to go into the number thing. By the characteristics that we already follow, those marks of identification of, of the beast, we know what we're talking about. So the Bible tells us that the papal power opened its mouth in what? Blasphemous. In blasphemies against God to blaspheme in his name. Actually, the title Pope derives from a word in Latin, Papa. And you know what Papa means? means Father. In fact, many nations in the world today recognize the Pope as the Holy, the Holy Father. He is also known as Pontifex Maximus, the Supreme Pontiff, which means the ultimate builder of bridges, which means that he intends to occupy the place of Christ as the true ladder or bridge that crosses or extends over the void between heaven and earth that sin created. And of course, he is not only uh, claims to hold the position of the Father and the Son, but also the Holy Spirit, Vicarius Filidei. And of course, the Bible teaches that the only representative of Jesus on earth is the Holy Spirit. Okay? So in summary, the Bible says that he would not only wage war against the saints and exercise power for 1,260 years, but he would also blaspheme God and think about changing times and the law. He would ensure that all inhabitants of the earth would worship him. So this takes us to the second beast. So let's go back to Revelation. So here we have the second beast. Verse 11. When I saw another beast coming out of the earth. This one doesn't come out of the sea, of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a? Have we seen the dragon before? Okay. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs. So that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he, has, he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And no one may buy or sell except those who have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then it says, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is six, six. Six. So let's see if we can identify this second beast. Okay? So it comes up from the earth. In other words, if sea means a lot of population, earth would mean little population. Horns like those of a lamb. Scholars believe that this represents Christianity. So it, it needs to represent a country that started off as a strictly Christian country. Where even their constitution was based on Christian faith. And then we have, it speaks like a dragon. So little by little, this power would abandon its Christian principles. And where are we seeing this happen? Or where can we lead 
this interpretation to, well, the United States of America. Remember when the pilgrims arrived on shores of North America, there was a little bit of a population here in this country. We had some Indian tribes, and, and that was about it. So we have the pilgrims arriving here in North America, you know, the Mayflower, you know the story, 1620, came from England and established what was called the New England, <laughs> the New England, 112 passengers. But what was the purpose of these people? Why were they traveling way over here? Well, here's the purpose. They wanted to establish a church without a pope and a country without a king. Where religious liberty would be number one on their agenda. So the United States of North America meets this characteristic because it arises in a sparsely populated territory. It emerges as a Christian nation, but little by little, it has abandoned its Christian principles. Now look what it says. It says... It exercises all the authority of what? Of the first beast in the presence of the first beast and causes the earth and its inhabitants to worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So, so let's see if we can uh, try to understand what's going on here. The beast imposes worship to the first beast, a process that is being fulfilled today. So let, let's try to figure this out. So we talked a minute ago how the United States made what Time Magazine called a holy alliance when we send an ambassador to the Vatican with, of course, some very uh, strong political agenda behind this of having, you know, communism fall in Russia. And so we have this political alliance. Now, what is it talking about when it says that the second beast is going to give the power to the first beast. So look, look what happens here. The two beasts, the Vatican and the United States, come together, according to the passage, and make an image of that first beast. This image is, if we study history, remember what happened in 538, the union of church and state. So here we have this image, the union of political and religious powers, which will impose the mark of the beast which according to what we're going to study now is the worship of Sunday. So we're going to prove that biblically. So let, let's go here. So let's just explain this. So we have the Vatican plus the United States. So we have here the union of church and state. This is the image of the beast, which will become what we know as the Sunday laws. So Sunday observance will be imposed as the day of rest. How do we know this? Well, there will be a foul Sabbath, which is the mark of its authority. Did you guys know that the mark of the authority of the Catholic Church is the change of Sabbath to Sunday? So let, let's go through this real quick. So the seal of God that we had talked about last week, uh, we find in the fourth commandment, the seal of God, the Sabbath commandment, because it says, the Lord your God, it has the title, creator, and it also mentions his territory, heaven and earth. So the seal of God is found in the fourth commandment, which through the whole Old Testament, you can find that it was always a sign between God and his people. The Bible says, keep my Sabbath holy that they may be a sign between us. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's found in the fourth commandment. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. This is in the creation account. And on the seventh day, 
Seventh day. God ended his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So notice that not all the days are the same. There is no day in the Bible that has those characteristics of having God rest on it, having God blessed it, having God sanctified it. There's no other day. And this was before sin. So I just want to recognize and remind you that this text was written before Adam and Eve sinned. This is at the end of the creation week where God separates that day. That's what it means by sanctifying. He separated it for a holy use. He blessed it. He rested on it. So not all the days are the same. So there's people that say, no, you can keep any day. No, no, you can't. The Sabbath, because it has to do with our intimate relationship with God. So here's some facts about the Sabbath. Mark uh, 4.16, Jesus kept the Sabbath. Uh, Luke uh, 23, 54 through 56, talk about the women at the time of Christ, that they decided to rest on the Sabbath according to the, to the commandments. So they came back from the grave. They, they were not able to accomplish, you know, the anointing and all of that. Uh, Acts 13, Acts uh, 16, Acts 18, the apostles and the early church kept the Sabbath. And I found something interesting that in, in the book of Acts, there's at least a reference of 85 times that the disciples kept the Sabbath. Okay. Now, there was only three days that are mentioned in the account of the crucifixion. So we have the, fir- the first day that's mentioned is the day right before the Sabbath. It says, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we have here... One day, called the day of preparation. In the time of Jesus, there was no such thing as Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They came later on in the Roman Empire that put those, those days to honor the, the stars and all that. But we understand that there was a day that had a name. It was Friday for us, but in biblical time, it was only called the day of preparation. And what were they preparing for? They were preparing for the Sabbath. So we have... The day of preparation, which the text mentions clearly that it was the day before the Sabbath. Then in Mark 16, 19, it says that he rose early on the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. So here we have the day of preparation, which would be the day prior to what? To the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, Jesus rested in the tomb. And then we have that on the first day of the week, they didn't have a name. It was just called the first day, then second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, day of preparation, Sabbath. Okay, so we actually only have the day of preparation with a name for a day of the week, which is the day prior to the Sabbath, and the Sabbath, okay, which means day of rest. And I found this very interesting. In many countries, they do not use Saturday. They use the same Hebrew word, Sabbathon, or, or day of rest, in many languages around the world. I mean, this was, this was crazy. When I did this research, just many countries don't even use the word Saturday. They use the word Sabbath to talk about the seventh day of our calendar week. So the seal of God is manifested in what way? Oh, it's manifested by keeping 
the seventh day Sabbath, the day that was established from creation. And the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast, a human institution that changed Sabbath to Sunday as a mark of its power. If you go back in history, you can see how little by little the Catholic Church was the one that transferred the sanctity of the Sabbath to Sunday. It started with the Roman Empire, but later on it was confirmed by the church. So how do we know it's a mark of its power? Just, just follow me here. It is a fact generally admitted by the Protestants that the Holy Scriptures do not recognize anywhere the change of the day of rest. And this is confirmed, I found this, this is confirmed in publications by the American Treaty Society and the American Union of Sunday Schools. One of these works recognizes that the New Testament says absolutely nothing about an explicit commandment for the day of rest, referring to Sunday, or defines rules concerning its observance. Now, now notice this, until the time of Christ's death, this is another Protestant book, no change had been made as to the day, and as far as biblical account is apparent, the apostles did not give any explicit commandment ordering the abandonment of the seventh-day Sabbath as the day of rest or observed on the first day of the week. Now, I want you to notice this next quote. Under the ancient law, the Sabbath was sanctif the sanctified day. And this is what the Catholic Church teaches. See how daring they are. They say, but the church, instructed by Jesus Christ and led by the Spirit of God, replaced the Sabbath for Sunday so that we now sanctify the first day and not the seventh. Sunday means the Lord's Day. You know, in, in, in Latin, it means the Lord's Day. It's, it doesn't mean like day of the sun, like in English. In Latin, it means day of the Lord. In, in, in Spanish, too, domingo, you know. And it is what it has become to be. As a sign, notice, underline this, as a sign of authority of the Catholic Church, Catholic writers cite, the very act of changing Saturday to Sunday a change in which Protestants consent, and then they go on to say, because by keeping Sunday strictly, talking about the Protestants, they recognize the power of the church to ordain feasts and to impose them. And of course, the paragraph ends saying that if they disobey, if anyone disobeys those commandments made by the church, they are sinning. That's, that's how the paragraph literally ends. But by keeping Sunday strictly, they recognize the power of the church to ordain feasts and to impose them. So I, I put this question up here. What then is the change of the day of rest but a sign or, or mark of the authority of the Roman church, the mark of the beast? Isn't it not? The mark of the beast, a false day of worship, imposed by a religious political power which is taking place as we speak. Now, I have some good news. I have some good news. So let's, let's go there to Revelation. Revelation 17.4. And it says there, These will make war with the Lamb. And I'd like to change the word and for the word but. You allow me to do that? Okay. These will make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Now the text doesn't end there. 
The text says, and those who are with him. Brothers and sisters, you need to be with the Lamb. I need to be with the Lamb. It says here, and those who are with him are called. First of all, God has called you to be part of his family, of his church. And those who are with him are called. There should be a comma there. Chosen. Does it feel to know that you've been chosen? But it doesn't end there. It also says, and faithful. And faithful. Brothers and sisters, Revelation is a message of hope. And as the near future, as we have seen today, will come to pass, and we will see the Sunday law imposed and worship on Sunday decreed in this country and then spread to the whole world. Are you ready to be called? Are you ready to be chosen? Do you want to be one of the faithful following the Lamb? Brothers and sisters, this is not, this is not an easy thing. I mean, we sometimes forget how important the Sabbath is, and we still don't have the Sunday laws. And we're doing things sometimes on the Sabbath that we know is not honoring God. So imagine when Sunday law is imposed and we have to work on Sabbath if you want to feed your family. Because it says that you will not be able to buy or sell unless you receive the mark of the beast. So this is serious stuff. These are things that we need to pray about. But most of all, we have to recognize that these powers that make war with the Lamb will fail. It says here that the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Who is Jesus to you this morning? Is He Lord of lords and King of kings? Amen? Can I hear amen? Yeah, so that means that you will follow Christ no matter what the cost. If it costs you your life, Worth it. Because the Bible says that if you follow the Lamb, you are called, you are chosen, you are faithful. Revelation is a message of hope. Jesus is coming soon. So as we sing our last song that we use for this series, let's sing with passion. Let's sing with our heart that we know Jesus is coming again. And we need to proclaim that to those around us. Let them know that Jesus is coming and we must get ready. We must be called. We must be chosen and among the faithful. Amen. Let's stand up and sing our closing song. And as we sing, consecrate your, God, your life to God and tell God, you know what, God? I, I really want you to help me to follow the Lamb no matter what the cost. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the book of Revelation, a message of hope. Dear God, we know as the final events get nearer, we need to put our faith and trust in you even more so. Dear God, help us to have a deep relationship with you. Help us to honor your holy day of rest, the seventh day of the week, because that will strengthen us. That will provide us a different scope when all of these things come to pass and we'll be able to understand that only those that follow the Lamb will be called, chosen, 
and faithful. Dear God, today we want to thank you because prophecy is clear. We know these things shall come to pass. But let us not wait till those things happen to get ready. We need to be ready today. We need to worship you like you deserve today. We need to serve you to the best of our capacity and with the spiritual gifts that you have given us today. Dear God, we give our lives to you once again. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of this earth. We bless his holy name and we pray all this in his name. Amen.